Oh, we were scared out of our minds. Our goal, like our lifelong goal, was to own three houses that would eventually pay for our kids' future college. Yeah. Period. That was our goal. So then we started reading a few different books and realized that I had to start investing so I could have passive income and kind of live the lifestyle that I really wanted. Uh, and so we started investing in my, other than my house, the first actual investment was a $1.5 million storage facility. Yeah. So first ever investment I ever got into was a self-storage facility. That's amazing. Uh, got the lead and we were under contract in 24 hours and closed 30 days later. Wow. There's that, that issue that we run into all the time where people think you have to do the house hacking, you have to do the duplexes, then you have to go to multifamily, then maybe you can go to commercial. Like, did you have any of that discussion in your head or like what made you realize that you could just go straight to commercial? Hey, what is going on everybody? And welcome back to self storage income. Today we have a special guest here on the podcast, Ben call. He is a real estate agent and broker from Rochester, Minnesota, and he's been investing since 2018 and owns several different classes of real estate like multifamily, triple net lease, and now self-storage. He's going to be talking about his experience starting out in self-storage from these different asset classes and why you don't actually need a already existing portfolio in order to break into the industry of self-storage and to start investing right away. He's also the host of the Action Academy podcast. But before we get started, I just want to remind you, we're still celebrating the launch of AJ's audiobook, Growing Wealth in Self-Storage. If you want a copy, just head to the link down in the show notes, and we'll send that to you right away. And I just want to say a huge thank you for the listeners here on the podcast, whether you're new or you're a returning listener. Thank you so much. It's been great hearing your guys' feedback. You're the reason why we do these episodes. We hope you get a ton of value from this one. And without further ado, let's go ahead and get started. All right, everybody, if you're going to be going out and buying and purchasing and investing in a self-storage facility yourself or even with partners, you're going to need some money, right? You're going to need some financing. You're going to need funding. Look no further. Go to Live Oak Bank. These guys know self-storage. They're a phenomenal group of people. They do incredible work in the self-storage industry. We've had a plethora of listeners go to Live Oak Bank, get their financing, get educated on self-storage. They're a amazing solution for you guys, all your financing needs and all things self-storage. Again, Live Oak Bank, be sure, check them out. Welcome everybody to Self-Storage Income. And today we have another in-person interview here in the office with Ben Call. Dude, I'm happy that you came out. This is great. Second time here in Boise. Uh, me and Connor appreciate you coming out here to have a, have a discussion with us. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. I, uh, as uh, AJ, you alluded to, I was out here a few months ago for your guys' first ever yeah. event and was pretty shocked uh, just to see Boise and how it kind of reminisces and reminds me of Colorado, which is a place yeah. that I really love. And so it was fun to kind of come back out here and spend some time personally, just drive around, seeing the area, and then getting to spend some time and do this with you guys. Yeah, it's a it's a good area. We we like it here. No, it's not here a lot. It's, no, it's no, I mean, I mean, yeah. sorry, it's horrible. <laughs> Everybody stay away. That's right. <laughs> oh, but you know, before we dive into this, why don't you give give people here a little bit about your background and what you're doing today to give kind of context for the conversation? Sure. So uh, sports was my thing growing up. I played uh, college football at Kansas State, and we actually won the Big Twelve last weekend. So that's uh, yes. an awesome epic win and we're playing Alabama in the Sugar Bowl in a few weeks yeah. uh, so it's been fun tracking a lot of my friends and you know former colleagues that are still coaching there and keeping up with that uh, but basically I got married when I was coaching and that lifestyle for a family is 
it's really tough. I mean, you're working yeah. from six in the morning to midnight year round, your breakfast, lunch, laundry, dinner, weight rooms, all there for you. And after six months of being married, I had one dinner with my wife and realized this was not what we kind of envisioned. Yes. So essentially we just uh, moved home to Rochester, Minnesota, and I got my real estate license as kind of a fallback job to kind of figure out what I wanted to do next and just dove in head first and realized I had an absolute passion for real estate just purely as an agent. And then kind of things evolve and you grow and your business doubles every single year for a while. And then you realize that you're kind of falling back into that trap of me needing my cell phone to ring to get a paycheck. Yep. So then we started reading a few different books and realized that I had to start investing so I could have passive income and kind of live the lifestyle that I really wanted. Uh, and so we started investing in my, other than my house, the first actual investment was a $1.5 million storage facility. So yeah. first ever investment I ever got into was a self storage facility. Uh, got the lead and we were under contract in 24 hours and closed 30 days later. Wow. That is so rad. <laughs> wow. I want to touch on that real quick because yeah. there's there's that that issue that we run into all the time where people think you have to do the house hacking, you have to do the duplexes, then you have to go to multifamily, then maybe you can go to commercial. Like, did you have any of that discussion in your head or like what made you realize that you could just go straight to commercial? Oh, we were scared out of our minds. Um, our, our path um, was to, our goal, like our lifelong goal was to own three houses that would eventually pay for our kids' future college, yep. period. That was our goal. Uh, and because of all this, as I was starting to read and being in real estate, I wanted to find other source of it income as well uh, on top of my real estate sales business. So before I ever invested in a self-storage facility, one of the things that I did is I started a third-party property management company. So I already had experience in managing uh, single-family and multifamily, and so I was able to learn the investor mindset prior to ever doing it myself and yeah. how to... Um, you know, invest in structured debt and all those things. So I had experience in multiple asset classes. Great. Huh? And, and so my first partner on this storage facility, this, this opportunity was brought to us by a lender that me and my partner, eventual partner, uh, ended up using. And he says, look, we used to have the loan on this property. We know it very, very well. Uh, the current owner uh, is a widow. Uh, her husband built it and uh, their, vo or their answering machine, if you call throughout the winter, says we're currently in florida please call us back in april and i said that is a sign yes. that this is going to be very attractive yes. because the numbers were mind-blowing mm -hmm. and so basically we just jumped in and, and the partner that uh that i have on that particular property and some of my other storage facilities uh was someone that i had been managing his apartment portfolio for and he was an ex-college athlete and i was an ex-college athlete so it was just a natural fit that two athletes come together and start into the investment world so it was an easy jump for me, uh, but sitting home at night, it was very, very, uh, uh, it kept us awake for a while, just jumping yeah. into something that large initially. Yeah. Yeah, no, there, there is that, you know, it, it, you just can't get rid of it. I, I mean, even for us, we had owned storage facilities. They were small ones in third tier markets. And the first big one that we bought was $3 million. And that scared me. And I, I'd already been in the game, but to buy something, not only over a million dollars, but over $3 million. And I had bought other businesses, right? And I maybe that's why I was hesitant to it and everything, but it was, it was just like, there's this mental hurdle of, holy cow, that's $3 million. What if this doesn't work, right? What if it, all the numbers say that it will, all the logic says that it will, but that emotion jumping in, it, it did. It kept me, I was like, 
Uh, like I didn't want to be the one to say, yes, let's do this. Well, right. And, it was and, like, Oh, nervous. And, and so getting started, I mean, for me and my partner, never owning self storage locally, you never heard of any self storage selling or trading. And so we went under contract just out of pure, the numbers looked fantastic. And then I started looking for podcasts. I started looking for books. I started driving around to literally every single facility that I could find walking in the door and saying, Hey, I'm under contract. Can you teach me everything you know? Yeah. And this was back in 2018 before bigger pockets started talking about storage. Yes. So there was zero content out there really for anybody to learn. Yeah. And so my fallback was I have two really good friends that own fairly large hotel portfolios. So I just said, hey, I'm buying a self-storage facility. We have lots of clients. Tell me how you operate a hotel. And I'm going to literally start my storage facility like I'm operating a hotel. Smart. Yeah. <laughs> and so basically concierge and convenience were the big things. And so that's when I found uh, we use easy storage uh, software. Yeah. Uh, so we put everything online. We started um, adding using Google ads. We started doing SEO. Uh, we started putting everything online for automatic payments, reoccurring payments. Yep. And we basically just copied a hotel model. Yep. And that's kind of how we got started. Um, hence the reason why our uh, lead asset marketing and revenue management guy is from Marriott. That's why. Because we, uh, we, you know, that's honestly, that's what we believe. We believe that storage aligns way closer to hotels than any other asset. Way more than apartments. Way more than... You know, it's just, it, it's like we often talk about like how it's its own thing. We say, you know, I view it, it's more closer to hotels, but instead of a daily, right, um, it, it, like hotels have huge daily fluctuations. We look at it as more huge monthly fluctuations and more like micro weekly fluctuations, right? But it's the still the same concept. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we, we dive into that obviously really really hard because that's how you win the game and that's how all of the REITs are doing it so it's not only a matter of well I don't want to operate like that you know people are like well I want it and I want to do it this way and I like to tell them like, the customer doesn't care what you want the customer will go where they want to and they will consume how they want to so if the customer has decided that they're doing it this way we don't, it's not our decision. We've got to move. We got to go to where they are. And it's amazing to me how self-storage got away for so long by telling the customer, no. And they got, they were able to because nobody did it. So you had no choice as a customer. And that is just not true. And that's why we see the huge ability in self-storage to get value add that you don't see like a lot in other asset classes because of that fact right there. Um, it was built off a model that the customers didn't even want. That wasn't even- Yeah, and, and, and so as I've grown over the years and been able to adapt and refine our process and systems, convenience is like hands down the number one thing yes. that we've been able to continue to implement and yes. update be, and it's added the most value. I mean, we, you know, I'm based out of Rochester, Minnesota, and the majority of my, or all of my facilities are in outlying markets in smaller towns yep. next to Rochester. And I used to have to hop in the car and drive 20 minutes when I was doing all this myself to go give someone a key for a $45 unit. 
yeah. that was a huge time suck for me. Yes. And so initially to, for me to save time, we started implementing and we switched to DaVinci locks. Yep. That's what we changed to. And so now we got a lot of time back. Someone can hop on my website through a Google ad or our website. They can literally rent a unit in less than five minutes and start moving in their things. 100%. And now because of how convenient it is, we don't have to be on the phone. We can also charge more than any competitor in the area because it's easy. People are willing to pay an extra five to ten dollars for the exact same thing across the road yeah. because they don't have to talk to us. Exactly. They can just instantly start moving in. Hundred percent. And you know, there's this it, this resistance, right? A lot in the self storage industry. And I think one of the reasons there's this resistance is because the big facilities that you have struggle operating in that fashion. And all the vendors make all their money on the big facilities. So there was no real demand and need. In fact, that you know, that's why we started Tenant. It was to be the first openly, truly automated, right, all the way end-to-end -end system, but that you could do across the board. Not just smaller, not just mid-size, but like all-encompassing that would also be transferable because it's that's so important. And, and two, even with that, like I still, the one of the first facilities that was ever end-to-end, -end, truly fully automated, we opened up. And that was in um, Reno. And that was hard. That was really, really hard to get that. Meaning the hardware, the software had to perfectly align. It had to be seamless, right? And that, that was tough. But um, a lot of people thought, oh, well, that means you don't have employees. Like, no, we have two full-time employees there. It's a ginormous asset. Then they're like, well, then why go automated? I'm like, because we can do way more and we still need less people. But like you just mentioned, I looked at it as we were changing the economics of our demand. So there was a segment of the population now that could only utilize us. So when other assets, right, there's other... Uh, customers wanted to go to a storage facility. Some of those customers, out-of-state customers, everything else, ours was truly the only real option that they could even use. So we completely changed the supply-demand economics microly for our facility. And it, so people look at it and they keep going into these two base camps where, and we, we try to tell them like, that's not how this works. It's, oh, it's totally manless, automated, right? Or you're a manned facility. And we're like, that's how it started out those worlds are now converging and that is game changing to our industry uh and it's going to not only continue but accelerate but when you're dealing with smaller facilities i i don't even know how you literally i don't know how you do it without it because i i did we had no technology when we started small facilities we had to do manually we had to contract out with people it was a pain we couldn't optimize right? All of these things. That's why we left small facilities. And, and so that was one of the huge things for us is so we started with this first facility. And, you know, my partner and I basically said that this is brand new. It's the biggest asset that he had ever done as well. And literally my first ever. Yeah. And we basically made an agreement that we're going to dive in and we're going to learn everything we everything possibly can, can about this. So we we operated. We were plowing snow. We were mowing yep. the lawn. We were changing the garage springs. We were doing it all. And we yep. needed to just dive head in and learn about this. And we knew that if we wanted to grow, we needed to figure it out and figure it out very, very quickly. And so fast forward about a year. Uh, we had a major hailstorm come through and uh, we had to file an insurance claim. We couldn't find anybody to replace our roofs in our local market. 
And so I was struggling. I'm like, look, we're going to get brand new roofs on this facility. Like, I got to find a contractor. Yeah. Couldn't find anybody. And so our buildings are Tracti buildings. And so I just called Tracti and I said, hey, who do you know that's a contractor? And uh, they put me in touch with one of the largest contractors in all of South southeastern Minnesota. Turns out he also owns one of the largest portfolios in southeastern Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And in my head, I'm like, huh. I don't care what this guy's going to charge. I'm I'm hiring this guy because I need to be a real, yes. buy you know build a relationship yes. to continue to buy. Yep. And so we hired him, and I was basically driving by every single morning. I'm like, hey, uh, do you need help carrying the steel up to the roof? What can you tell me about how you operate? What can you yes. tell me about your project manager or your um, property management? And basically learned and just soaked everything and I possibly could. And then sure enough, a year later, he sold us our our next few facilities. And so oh, we had to learn very very quickly. But getting started, we were doing everything ourselves to get confidence in order to be able to grow and scale. I love that. I mean, that when, you know, when we got started, we didn't have like, you know, we, we didn't have the education stuff at all. There was no books. There was nothing at all. Nobody really did storage. There's no information. So we um, joined uh, other operators and were founding members of a co-op called Store Local. And the principal reason why we did that was because we had to learn. So who to learn? The operators. That's who I wanted to learn from. So we were going to meetings every quarter. We were going to everything. And I'm just sitting in there going, what's everybody doing? I'm taking endless notes. Um, and I'm asking, can we go on your site? Can we come look? And I, I think that this active learning style is something that the internet has really hurt us all with. Meaning that it's, I think that learning, right, is simply just listening to this podcast, which is great, everybody. You should do that. That's a resource I wish that I had. But that is just one piece in a puzzle. And you cannot substitute active learning with static learning, i.e. books, podcasts. Getting on the site, talking with owners, walking through, because what it does is what you just said. You learned, but you also created opportunity. And that is that is it mm -hmm. right knowledge and opportunity and that's why you're able to grow so tell, tell me now like where are you at today how many facilities yeah so great question so my expertise comes from operations and management that's yes. how i started because i was a management company managing for others before i did anything myself so because of that it gave me confidence and i'm actually involved in multiple asset classes so i'm in multifamily, self-storage and triple net real estate mm -hmm. and all that is because i was confident in actually doing it day to day to learn yeah. and i didn't just jump in and go buy a retail center with zero experience now that i've been doing this for years and have a large portfolio in each of the asset classes personally i think triple net is one of the most complex asset classes you can get involved in and there can be major swings up and major swings down yeah. but since 2018 um, I've built a portfolio of about 125,000 square feet of self-storage. Um, by the end of this calendar year, we'll have uh, 50 units in multifamily, and, uh, and hopefully, if all goes well, uh, eight retail centers. And so basically, just this year alone, because to back up a little bit, up until this year, I never put any time or money in self-improvement into myself. Yeah. So your guys' conference a couple months ago was the first time I ever went to anything real estate related yeah. as a conference. I listened to a lot of podcasts yeah. uh, and read a lot of books, but this is the first year I've put any time or money into self-improvement. Yeah. And the absolute wildest thing is I hired a coach yeah. um, and started coming to conferences and masterminds. Yep. So this year alone, if all tracks as planned, by the end of December, we will close $25 million of real estate this year. That's amazing. It, 
I love that you identified the fact that where you were at wasn't enough to accomplish your goals, but you also identified the fact that that is something that's within your power to change. And this is so vastly overlooked. You know, I think I was very fortunate that that was something that I always had in me because I was a dyslexic ADHD kid. So I was always told, Mm -hmm. you are not enough to accomplish (laughs) this. You've got to do more. And that's just the way life is. Other people can study and take a test in an hour. It's going to take you five. And you also have to have tutors. You have to have everything else. So it was just, that was me, right? I I just knew it. I had no fear of being stupid because I just accepted it, right? And it was like that so astronomically projected me forward that I think when other people stopped learning, when they stopped doing things, I was like, no, I can't. I literally can't because I I don't have the ability to, which was, I think, a, obviously a false narrative. I believe anything. But that kept me, and that's how I've always been, just like you. I'm like, no, I need to be improving myself, and I need to be doing more on a daily basis, everything else. And the that knowledge is such a gift to know because it wasn't that you're not good enough, right? It's just you hadn't obtained skills mm-hmm. that you needed to achieve it. Well, and, and for me, I'm an athlete and yeah. I am comp- I'm more competitive than almost anyone I'll ever meet. Yeah. And my mind is always racing. So until I got into real estate, I had zero idea I had any entrepreneurial mindset whatsoever. It was sports and working yes. out and being the best I could absolutely be in every facet of my life. And now that's transitioning over into being an entrepreneur and, and into real estate. So many people and, and sports do that for. It's exa- crazy. Yeah. And, and, and so my mind is always chugging. So even as I grew my income grew both active and passively, I said, my mind's racing. Like I want to do anything and everything I can within real estate. Yep. And so the reason I hired my coach about a year ago, it's because I was saying yes to everything and I needed to refine and start to narrow in on what I truly wanted to do. And so part of that is, uh, you know, stepping away from certain aspects of my business mm-hmm. and focusing on the three asset classes that I'm involved in right now, which I mentioned are multifamily storage and triple net and also refining what I actually enjoy doing and brings me happiness both in my personal life and in my business. And I was a fullback. So I would literally just put my head down and run through things yes, and, and get joy out of it, which is absolutely yeah. insane. And so that's kind of what I'd been doing in my real estate business and, and moving, you know, after going to college and moving, um, my wife and I, we literally packed up a 12 foot U-Haul when we gave up coaching college football. Like our entire life was in that U-Haul and we were living in my parents' basement before we started investing. Uh, And we bought our first house and a year later we bought this first storage facility. And so it's just amazing, like you say yes to everything, but then you kind of lose track of what actually makes you happy. And so the thing that makes me the most happy is investing and structuring deals. So I love chasing deals and I love structuring them. And the absolute crazy thing is that really no one talks about is the power of commercial real estate, A, in all of the benefits yes. that it comes with, but also the power of structuring your debt within yes. commercial real estate. It's absolutely mind-blowing what you can actually do, do. and it's all legal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, well this, is, this is perfect, because I, I was gonna ask you how you structured that first deal. You know, with bringing in partners, I mean, what was that process like for you? Did you have an idea of what that, that structure would look like going in? Did you have that already planned? 
Um, how did you put it together? I mean, because this is the question that everybody wants to know. It's like, where's the money coming from? How are you operating it? Who's doing what? All good questions, but just curious how you Yeah, so, I mean, being the first deal, um, you know, my partner had owned multifamily, uh, and it was the standard you put, you know, 20 to 30% down uh, and just buy it and rent it. And for, so for this storage facility, we looked at our lender and said, we want to buy it, tell us what we need to do. And so it was literally 25% down on a 20-year AM. Like, looking back, it was the worst structure of financing that we've ever would have done. Uh, because it was just the bank told us to do it and yep. we said, okay. We yep. had zero idea that you could push well, back on there. banks yeah. to negotiate what's more in your best interest yes. and other creative options. So many people, you just hit on something that I think people do not understand. They think banks are like retail centers where you walk in <laughs> and there's a product and a price. That's We spend so much time negotiating with banks. They send over contracts. We talk overall, right? Structures, things like that. But then our attorneys are working on contracts. It's completely a negotiation. Yeah. And people for, don't know that or forget that. Yeah. Well, even some of the people at the bank don't understand that. Yes. Like I've had people at banks tell me that like, oh yeah, you can't talk to our underwriters. And I'm like, no, I can't. I can't. Well, and, and, and so even <laughs> in, even in 2018, thing. when we did this, you know, fortunately, the bank that we worked with already had the loan, so they were familiar. But I started talking to other banks to find out if we were getting competitive terms. Yeah. And even in 2018, it was banks weren't familiar with self-storage. Yeah. It was hard it was to hard. get aggressive terms for storage. So the second two facilities we bought, we bought on seller financing or a contract for deed directly from this developer that uh, I told you that we, or the contractor that we had worked with. And so that was completely seller financed. We put less than 10% down. We got a 4% interest rate amortized over 30 years. And so that was a big deal at the time because it was a lower interest rate and we were able to stretch out our loan over 30 years, which drastically helped us with cash flow, which allowed us to add value to the property immediately through cash flow because these were built uh, semi-recently, but they were all gravel. There was weeds growing everywhere. And so we knew that we had to constantly reinvest in this facility to turn it around with asphalt, uh, LED lighting, security systems, and some other minor things, including the technology that would implement for our concierge service of our, our, of our clients. And so this was a big deal, the way that we structured that to continue to reinvest all of our cash flow into this facility over an initial year. But you think it's crazy to buy an investment and not take any cash flow? But with us reinvesting that money, we put just into one facility, we put almost $100,000. But within a year, we were able to raise rent, and now we're cash flowing an additional $100,000 a year for as long as we hold the asset. And so our cash flow was huge, and we also increased the value of the property by over $1.5 million. So structuring your debt gives you the ability to do those types of things. Yeah. I, uh, you know, when you look at structuring debt, when you look at um, working with banks, the you mentioned a few things that are really important. First of all, your plan. So what you need to realize about banks is banks don't do this. Like I think people think that the banks know what they're doing, and so they're telling you if you can or can't because they know or understand it. But banks don't know anything about storage. They don't. They're a bank, right? They loan money. So when they look at you, they want to see, what are you going to do? And what are you going to do and how will that affect the cash flow? So when you walk in and you say, this is the situation of the asset. Here's all the things that we're going to do. This is what it'll do to expenses and revenues. And here how I can show you improve it. They go, that's amazing. Here's the money, right? Because they want to know that you are in control 
and that you know more than they do, that's why they give you money. If they know more than you do, they don't want to give you money, right? Because they go, I don't even know what to do here. So if I don't think that you know, why would I ever give you the money? And you need to be able to explain it to me. And then the better you can show banks, the better you can walk through with them and show this is what we're going to do. This is how it'll work. Here's the proof in the market, right? The more they want to say, okay, well, I see that you need 200,000 more dollars because you need to build this or do that. So yeah, why don't we package that into the loan? Now, all of a sudden they're like, let us help you accomplish your plan. Mm -hmm. And that's really big for people starting out to understand. I always tell them you need to pair that with uh, feasibility studies, right? And you need to pair that with your overall business plan. So like one thing that we do, we do feasibility studies and we do them for other people. You guys can follow the link below and go do it because it's, you do it. Here's the feasibility study to give to the bank that shows also, this is a third party that is confirming and here's the data that backs my plan. So now they say, you have a plan. Here's a third party that's professional in what they do. And they're now showing the evidence and everything that you're saying in the plan. Now they feel way more comfortable because it, it's not backed on your personal finance nearly as much as it is as the asset. And, and so when I started, literally, we just printed out the rent roll and the P&L from the seller and gave it to the bank and said, here, give us here. a term sheet. Yeah. Now it's totally different because I've learned everything yes. that you just said. So essentially, I create an immersive Dropbox folder now that basically I'm doing the job for the bank and for the appraiser. Yep. Because I have, I have more data about what I'm looking into. And I personally, like, if I'm personally guaranteeing a loan, who the hell do you think is going to care more about what I'm about to buy Absolutely. than anybody involved in this transaction? So I literally am getting as many, you know, market studies as I possibly yep. can. I'm pulling all of the comps. I'm secret shopping all of my, yes. you know, competition and creating literally an entire package for the bank and for the appraiser. And because I do that, it not only gives them this information and gives me confidence that I know what I'm doing and that this is going to be a good asset for me to purchase and personally guarantee the loan. But it also shows the bank exactly what my plan is. So therefore, I'm able to negotiate better terms. Mm -hmm. you're, you're, the bank is looking at you as the professional. The bank is looking at you as the source of knowledge. And that is what you need to do with banks. And you do that by being prepared. Everything you just mentioned, everyone, like rewind it, just make a list and go do it. Like, and so uh, the other thing that happens is something you just mentioned that was very important because this also happened to me. You said, listen, when we first got it, it was like, here's the rent. I guess you're giving me the terms and I'm going to take what I get. Now you walk in with a package and you say, here's what I need. And the bank says, okay, well, you know what you're doing. So let's look over this and let's have the underwriters look over this and make sure that we get it. But you're shifting the, sh the, the seats. You're in charge. You're the expert. They're here to assist you in accomplishing this through a transaction of capital, right? And that is so, so powerful. And you need to make sure that you understand when you're personally guaranteeing this, right? Obviously, you have the risk. But the bank, when you go get a loan from home, all the banks cares about is your income and how steady it is. And if you can pay them, then they're going to max you out, right? Like a leech to say, how much can I pull out of you before it's going to risk danger in the loan? That's their, that's their benchmark. I can get X out of you before we might be in danger of you defaulting. And that's where we stop. 
That's not how commercial real estate works. They say the asset, right, is the most important piece on this. Like I've never want, like we give our personal financial statements and everything, of course, to the banks, but there is no cap. They don't say, oh, you make this much money, so we're not going to loan to you anymore. No, that's not how it works because they look at the asset. So that means instead of focusing on your income and everything, focus on the asset because what they care about is the person that owns it and running it just and, like and, you said. And so that there's like, we could talk for probably five hours on like exactly what you just said. But one, the way that I underwrite a property has not changed since I literally had nothing to my name. Like when I look at a property from five years ago when I got started to now, I'm always looking at the downside scenario. Like if everything goes wrong, am I yep. still breaking even and making money? If that checkbox is checked, now we look at what can our potential target returns be? Yes. And then also what is the upside if things go well and what the market conditions are gonna look like. So we always look at the downside first. And if that checkbox, we move forward. And then we start to look at an array of things within our market and our competition. But the nice thing now is that the economy is changing drastically. The terms yes. that we can get from banks are changing drastically so every much. single day. Yes. And so the problem is, is when we're looking at assets uh, and calling and looking, it uh, doesn't matter what type of asset class it is, but everyone thinks their property is valued it was what it was six months or a year yep. ago. And they're like, you know, they've been holding on, holding on, holding on, trying to time the market. And they're listening to every single broker calling them and telling them what their property's worth. Yep. Now the economy's changed. The terms that we can get in financing have drastically changed. And cap rates and prices haven't come down at all. Yeah. They're still rising in yeah. some markets. So what do we do? We start to look at creative financing. And now mm -hmm. we've I've personally been having a lot of success with creative financing, just direct to seller or also stacking different types of financing together when I go get bank terms. We're currently negotiating on 15 deals with seller financing and creative financing. In fact, I would say that every single deal that is legitimately in our funnel, we are at least having those conversations, if not already down the road, on talking about contracts and how this is gonna work and play out because of that reason right there. It is a big, big thing that sellers just have not caught on. And we think that they will. We think that that's gonna really happen next spring because I think they're all gonna wait for the bounce back or the slow season and be like, okay, well, now this isn't my buying prospects. Now I've come to grips because I have comps that are saying, oh, well, so-and-so did whatnot. But right now we have this intermediate period where everyone's confused about value yeah and, and this and, is the time to get it done. And, and, and the thing about it is this is not something that you can just walk into a door and talk to a seller and get a deal done in 10 seconds it no. takes an immense, immense amount amounts. of education oh my gosh and you're educating the seller but a lot of times you're also educating the broker that you might be yes. working through on on how and why you're structuring it the way you are so one of the things where i've had success and gotten traction on creative financing or direct to seller is I, I just walk in and say, look, you know, what do you need? And yes. then basically I'll back in or work backwards for a solution. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the offers or LOIs that I write, I basically type up all the terms that I need. And then in my purchase, uh, basically like, you know, price mm -hmm. or, or basically I create three options. And I say, which option do you want? Yes. And for me, I don't care which yep. option you pick because the math is the same. It's just structured differently. Yep. So one of the things that does is it makes a seller feel like they're in the driver's seat and whatever option they pick, they win. Yes. For me, I don't care. 
I'm yeah. happy with the deal either way you slice it because I underwrote it correctly with all of the options. We just went over this, what, two, three podcasts ago, and I have a YouTube video that actually walks through that exact thing. We call it our three option strategy. And all I'm doing is I'm showing, um, and you can go see it on the YouTube video where we walk through the numbers and say, listen, I need X to work. I can get X though, based upon three different prices from the owner. So then it's just kicked back. Owner, what do you what do you need, right? Well, I need this much money out and I need this much money cash flow. Perfect. Well, let's look at it. These are the three different ways we can do it, which is predicated on what I need. Then they choose. And almost always, I know which one they're gonna choose. And almost always, it's better for us. Funny how that works. Um, but the three option strategy when seller for seller financing is what gets us deals. It's what gets us deals done when everybody else walks away. And it is the most important thing right now when working with sellers. Because like you said, the educational front, I mean, dude, we're like at five, six months on some deals. It used to be, you know, we're talking about 60 day close. We're talking five months, not even moving to close, right? We're, we're just coming to the the agreement itself with the seller. And it's most likely a verbal agreement. Now yes. we need to talk about exactly. the contract. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So you need to be prepared for that. And also I find that most people aren't doing that work where you, I are obviously, we're happy to do that work with the seller. We're happy to go through it. We're happy to work it out. Well, that gives us a competitive advantage, right? Because nobody else is, nobody else is talking about it. They say, well, I can get my money at 7%. So that means you're, your property's worth a million less. And they're like, well, I can't afford to lose a million dollars. They're like, well, it doesn't work. And they walk away. We're like, well, okay, let's figure out how we can make this work. And that that that's the winning strategy in times when you have a value problem because value in commercial real estate is not factored in debt. So the owners are looking at it saying, no, debt is not my problem, that's your problem. So that means my value is this. But buyers, just because seller, you don't factor it in, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We still have to pay that and we can't be underwater. So it's this mass confusion that's happening right now that debt, the, the debt terms and cost have just killed the valuation proposition right now for both buyers and sellers. Yeah, and the thing about this too is when I was getting started, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have the oh, confidence, yeah. no. I didn't have the education, and I didn't know where to get started. And now that, I've made a big push this year to get back on social media. Um, if you looked at my Instagram from six months ago, my last few posts were from when I was coaching college football 10 years ago. Yeah. And, and so this is, you know, me to help inspire others to get into this, to achieve financial freedom. And part of it is to give people confidence to get started by themselves or, you know, with, uh, you know, firms and groups like yours or mine that I've now created for others to get started. But the big thing is confidence. And one of the things that I've realized is what separates, I guess, us potentially right now is we understand that we don't need to know every finite detail yes. before we even have the courage to submit an LOI, yes. something verbal over the phone or an offer. We know that we have structured an offer that works for us. And if they just blindly accept it, <laughs> that's a huge win. Yeah. But we're gonna uncover a lot when we start getting financials and rent rolls and environmental reports and all that stuff. So it gives us the confidence to have the ability to work quickly to go after deals. And so one of the problems since I've been getting on podcasts and doing social media and having conversations with people is they want to know 
everything. They're going to yes. continue to analyze and analyze and analyze. Then the deal's sold to me or you or somebody yeah, else. Exactly, it's gone. And, and so you need to learn that you can submit offers. Be conservative in your offers if you yeah. need to, but get the confidence to submit an offer to put it under contract. Now you're doing all of your own due diligence yourself to make sure it's a sound investment. But now that you have a signed agreement, that seller mentally is already trying to figure out where they're going to put their money or where they're going to spend their money or where they're going to go buy a retirement home. Mm -hmm. So now you also have a little bit of you in the driver's seat to negotiate or potentially beat a seller up if there's things uncovered that you didn't find out initially. Maybe you're buying your first facility, maybe you're a seasoned veteran, whatever that might be, you're gonna need property management software and that's where Tenant Inc. comes in. They are going to be your solution, the top solution in the self-storage industry. I'm telling you guys, this technology has been developed by self-storage owners and operators just like us, just like us here at Self Storage Income who have had a say in how this technology has been built, have played a huge part in it, and it is one of the most robust and usable and actionable and valuable tools in regards to property management that you could ever utilize or find in the technology realm and all things self-storage. So be sure to check out Tenant Inc. Link is in the show notes. One of the best ways to increase value of your storage facility is to integrate tech to improve operations, right? So Janus International actually has their no-key technology. It's a keyless access entry system that allows not only the access and entry to the gate, to the building, to the unit. It allows tenants to, and potential tenants to actually come in and rent a unit online, right? They can access online, see what units are available, rent the unit, access the building, the unit, everything straight from their phone without ever having to go to the office to do any kind of paperwork, do any kind of that kind of to do any kind of paperwork or any of that, which is an incredible amount of value for so many people and that user expectation that people have in today's marketplace. Again, Janus International, their no-key system, be sure to check that out. Link is in the show notes. Yeah, that's what due diligence is for, is to uncover those unknowns and to dive deeper into the deal and, and verify you know, those metrics that matter that you looked at in the beginning to decide whether or not it was a good deal. Right. Yeah. Yeah. People exactly. look at you and say, oh, well, you can do that because you're confident because you know. Whereas, like you said, and I, I really not only agree with this, but man, preach it. I'm confident that I don't know. And I'm confident in that it's okay. That doesn't bother me in the least because I know that the process is we're going to figure it out. Mm -hmm. Like there is no, when we submit offers, when even too, when we go under contract, right? I do, not only do I not know everything, we understand that that's just not how it works at all. We're confident though, that we're going to approach it and we're going to find out the information. We're going to figure out a deal. We're going to make it work. And that is a huge difference. And I think when you're starting out, people do. They think, I need to know everything. Mm -hmm. But the people that are out doing it, they do not approach it like that at all. Right. right? Well, you use the term process, and I think that's where the disconnect is, is, is especially people starting out, obviously, is, is misunderstanding or just not knowing what that process is. Yes. And understanding that you don't have to know everything up front to be able to get a facility, property, whatever that is, under contract. And then that next piece comes to do the due diligence, to really dive in, to figure out the granular details, verify all that stuff. Absolutely. I think and, it's just and, a misunderstanding. And the, and the thing that I didn't do when I got started is I just said, I want passive income. 
So I can be a dad that once I have kids, I'm not in the outfield on my phone and running to go show a house. Yeah. Like that's all I knew. Yeah. But now I know that I have refined exactly what I want. And so it be the three asset classes that I'm in, I have very strict criteria that I'm looking for. And it's written out and I call it's called a buy box. Yep. And so when I'm hunting or looking for deals or talking to brokers, I every single day I make it a goal to call at least 10 to 15 brokers and a goal to submit at least five offers a week. Mm -hmm. And it sounds absolutely insane to people who are getting started to be able to do that. But it's what gets traction and what catches the attention of brokers and what ends up putting more good deals on my desk later. Yes. And so the big benefit of a buy box and what a buy box is, is basically refining your criteria of what you're looking for in investment. Mm -hmm. If you're just looking for single family homes or duplexes or self storage, figure out what you want. Your metrics at the beginning might be cash flow, cash on cash return, and it, it's going to evolve over time into something much more specific. But if you're getting started, write down what you want or what your goals are going to be and chase those. Don't just say yes to something because it's an investment or your buddy who's never owned anything said it was a good deal. Yeah. Going to a broker and saying, uh, when they say, well, what are you looking for? And you say a good deal. That doesn't mean anything. Nothing. That doesn't mean anything. So all that means to the broker is you are not a buyer. So they're not going to work with yeah, you. Yeah, I'm not sending you anything. Yeah, I'm not sending you anything. <laughs> and if you do, did, it's going to be shopped by everybody and it's <laughs> exactly. a bad deal. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. They're like, right. I'll put you on an email list because all they, I, I don't know what to do. Brokers are market makers. They have a seller. They're looking for a buyer if they have to make the market. If you do not define what your market is, he can't make a market with you. So there's nothing for him to do. And so the buy box criteria is really, really important. Because if you're just open-ended, first of all, analysis paralysis, overwhelmed, every, you have no direction, right? Like you got to get really, really focused in on that buy box to get any traction and then figure out everything else as you're moving along. And then you're seeing deals, you're talking to brokers, you're talking to owners. As you work, you learn, and then you figure things out. But if you don't have a target, you can't fire. Exactly, and, and the other thing too is getting started, like I am still a broker. I am still doing some deals uh, with clients. And you know, now being on podcasts and putting myself out there, I get calls from people all the time and I kind of help coach them through various things when you know time allows and I absolutely love doing it. Yeah. But the bigger thing that you need to do after create your buy box is follow up. Yes. And if a broker does send you something and it doesn't fit your criteria, you still need to respond to them and actually tell them why, why? it doesn't fit your criteria. Because if, it, if, if a broker knows that you're actually reviewing it seriously and you respond as to why, so they can refine their back end to send you better deals that fit your buy box, they will continue to engage you. Yes. If you just say, hey, this doesn't work with no explanation why, boom, you're off their list. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I just couldn't agree with that more. And when we look at overall deal flow, you know, I was having this conversation this morning. When we're looking at deal flow, where deals come from, I think a lot of people assume that it's like, oh, you just have a connection and then they just bring you the best deals because they know that you're their buddy. So they're bringing you good deals and I'm not seeing good deals. And it's like, that's not how this works because a good deal to me is not a good deal to like, I, I want 5% or less of deals. 
literally. I, it's probably more like 2%. We probably only want 2% of the deals out there that we could even say that we would want. That doesn't mean that the price is right. That doesn't mean everything else like that. I mean, that's just 2% of the deals out there we would very cons uh, seriously consider buying of the 60,000, right? And so when you, when you look at that, it's no, we're working at mass with brokers, other people, we're testing the market, but that activity being engaged in conversation, right? That's when deals come along. And a lot of times we're, we're totally surprised where the deal comes from. But it's the fact that we're being out there, we're following up, we're learning, we're you're being on top of it, right? That lets deals come up. But not doing any action, putting yourself on email list and saying, I expect somebody to hand me a good deal. I do not expect that out of a broker. No, it, not at all. And, and the thing that I think people need to understand, it, this isn't a get rich quick you know, type of real estate mm -hmm. game. It takes time. time. The way that I look at this is I want to be playing this lovely game of real estate and investing for years and years and years. And if I look back at when I got started and where I am now, my snowball is finally flying down the road. Yeah. And if you put a hockey stick on its side, I mean, basically, I was pretty much flat in every criteria that I'm looking at from, you know, cash flow, portfolio size, deal flow, a Rolodex of in investors. And it took me five or six years to really gain traction. Yeah. And the part with that is now that the gas pedal is floored, I need to continue that. And I need to continue to build out all of my systems, uh, my backend systems, and everything else that I do to keep this going. But yes. what happens is when you get started and things aren't kind of compounding, you get worried and you think that you're going to give up. Yeah. You just need to keep the pedal down and keep going because this takes time to gain traction and build a portfolio, your net worth, your cash flow. It takes a lot of time to get going, but once it goes, go. I've been at this over 15 years, almost 20 years. It's not, this is not quick. This is not easy. And it's easy to look at people that aren't. Now, obviously it didn't take 15, 20 years to get results. But what I'm saying is, right, you're like, it took time to learn, to build out, because what happens is we talk a lot about like uh, feedback loops and like our impact system where you grow, but then what you were saying, all of a sudden you're, you're, you can't grow because you don't have infrastructure. Then you got to like come off and you got to start building infrastructure processes, systems, like, you know, walk around our office and you see people buzzing, everything else like that. It's an organized system to keep that growth going. And so this is not a, like it just it's incremental as you're moving up it's just the increments get bigger well and in and, and the other interesting thing since i've been involved you know my first investment was in 2018. the market was in a great spot in 2018 yeah. and it kept going and now we're in a very interesting spot mm -hmm. but one of the things that i continue to talk to people is they're all trying to time the market when are we yes. going to get in and they've just been stockpiling cash in a in a checking or a savings account for the last seven years and have bought nothing, nothing. And if you think about it, you need, I mean, my philosophy is time in the market, compounding, and then the velocity of money over time. Yes. And, you know, everyone keeps asking me, is it the right time to invest? Absolutely. What's your criteria? Yep. Does this investment check your boxes? Yep. Buy it. Good deal is a good deal in a down market, sideways market, and up market, because the market is not what I'm judging the criteria on the deal, right? The market affects other inputs, things like that. So it may say, that this in particular deal was a good deal in one part of the cycle of the market. 
but you have another deal that was a good deal at another part of the cycle of the market, right? But a good deal is a good deal. Meaning if I can hit my metrics, if I can hit everything else, I'm looking at a good deal on a return towards me that is risk adjusted. I can find those in every market. I may not be able to find as many, you know, when we were really leveraging up, we're like, we're going to get into large assets um, and we're going to sell off our small ones. Uh, that was after the financial crisis. And everybody's like, wow, I wish that, you know, we could have been back then and we would have been, you know, buying and that would have been awesome. And I'm like, you don't understand. At that time, we were looking at like the only deal that was even listed. Why? Sellers didn't list deals. There, even though we, you look at charts and you say, oh, prices dropped, that meant there were so many deals. No, that's not true. That meant nobody could sell. And so all of a sudden there weren't plethora of deals. We had a shot at only a few deals, maybe a year that we had to figure out. And two of the deals that went to the market, right? At the time, it, they were only good screaming deals in hindsight. That's it, right? And people forget this. And they look hindsight and they say, deals are bad because what I'm looking at 10 years ago, look at the difference. That's not how investing works. That's not how economics work. Mm -hmm. And so this timing the market thing is just, it's, it's not do, I don't even understand how people even claim or what they do it. That doesn't even make sense yeah. because assets don't care. Well, and you're, you're, you're looking at that macroeconomic factor as well. You're not looking at the micro economic elements that are really driving self-storage. You're looking at this generality. You're looking at this overall market big picture that isn't really accurate in depicting where and where that, that opportunity is and isn't. Yes. Well, and, and one of the things too is, yes, are we in an interesting time in the economy? Yeah. A hundred percent. But one of the things that you're doing, you, you absolutely need to do at all times, no matter what time we are in the market, is we talked about earlier, like I personally, and you guys already mentioned too, that you look at the absolute downside first. Mm -hmm. But one of the things we're doing now on top of it to ensure we're okay and we can sleep at night and our assets going to perform well is we're stress testing all of our projects in various fashions. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter if you're buying something by yourself, if you're investing as an LP into a deal or you're looking at other sponsors to invest with, but you need to stress test the properties and say, okay, well, if I'm going to have a balloon come in five years, where are interest rates going to yes. be? Where are cap rates going to be? We have zero idea, but if I'm buying it today at an in-play six and a half cap, let's project out in five years when my balloon hits, cap rates are going to be at 8% and interest rates are going to be at 7%. And let's make sure that we're going to be able to refinance yep. and not have to put more capital or cash into a deal. And so again, if we are looking at this in a multitude of ways and the deal works today, and it also works in that absolutely abysmal scenario in five years what do you think is going to happen if we're at the point in the economy where we were in 2019 where interest rates are three to four percent and cap rates are five we're going to look like absolute heroes yep. but in the downside scenario where they've gotten substantially worse we're still okay in the properties performing at our target returns yeah i you know it's it's so funny because I, I i tell this all the time most deals that i see fail the deals didn't fail. The structure that they put on the deal fell. So all of a sudden you're sitting here looking, I see deals that are like, the deal didn't change, meaning the cash flow, everything else like that, it didn't change. So why did it fail? Well, you needed, you did a deal where you couldn't pay interest rates and then you had a time period for three years and then you had to pay interest rates, but because of the price that you bought that deal at, it couldn't sustain an 8% interest rate and it fell. The net cash 
flow didn't even change yeah, and the right. deal failed. Yeah. It just exactly that structure that you put on that asset caused a failure. So I look at that all the time and saying, if the structure that we're putting on, when does it end? When do we have to put a new one? What does that look like? And if the timing is bad, will that create a failure, right? And you can work through that. You can actually structure things. So your odds of something happening like that are astronomically low. Mm -hmm. um, that's exactly what we do here. Now, the problem with most people is they have to give up short-term gains and it's that is not a quick way because it's like, oh, well, I'm not going to just flip it in three years. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to just get a no interest rate. And like it's you're forfeiting some short term games usually to do that. But it, it's inconsequential compared to the risk that you're taking. Well, on. And, and when I started, a lot of this was on my own. But one of the things that I have learned is the power of doing this with partners or a team. Yeah. And so when I started, I already kind of touched on my first partnership in self-storage and why we worked so well together and why we still work very well together and we're improving all of our assets. But now in my private equity company, my partner has a basically a 17-year background in finance and modeling everything from commodities to real estate to renewable energy. And he's now, I think he's like one of four guys on the senior investment team for one of the largest US endowments in the entire country. And so the way that he underwrites and, and looks at all of the risk factors and projections, looking back from cycles going back to 2008 to earlier, is one of those things that now we're doing this together and we feel even more confident because our skill sets are very, very different, but they yep. also align that we can work together to make sure absolutely nothing gets missed. Yeah, that's, that's key really really key and if you look across the board at right like our companies and everything else you're exactly there's people that are just so so different because we want you want to look at deals deal structures on like a four-dimensional like every person is seeing it from one side and you need to put all of that together that's why like our deal approval right we have Everyone that's responsible responsible for aspects of that deal has to sign off on the deal. So we have six people that sit on the committee. They're leaders, right? They're they all come in from their individual part. They're all signing off before we will go and actually purchase that deal. So we can make sure we're seeing that thing from all angles. And that's internal on your own team or the team that I'm building. But the other sign is the third party team that oh, we also yeah. have with Absolutely. our uh, attorneys. Yeah, attorneys, uh, our accountants, everybody else, all CPAs, all of, yeah. all of it. And, and, and so now like we've finally refined our third party team and the majority of all of our deals, we run by them too and say, what did we miss? Oh, we do. Like I, I just went under, under contract on a multifamily property that's seller finance. We went under contract, we're raising the money and we're closing all in less than 30 days. So this is a, like an absolutely insane good deal, but we have a team built that we can work through absolutely everything that's needed to ensure we're not missing anything, but also close on this confidently. And so we yes. literally got the tax returns from the seller. We sent them to our accountant and say, hey, is there anything in here that we need to be aware of or run from? And we also send a lot of that same type of stuff to our um, attorney and also our lenders, even though we're not getting bank debt right now. We say, does this work if you were to write the loan? And then when our balloon's gonna come due in a couple years and we've structured an additional seller carry at that time because we wanna go get Freddie or Freddie Fannie long-term HUD debt, will you give us a non-recourse loan 
in a couple of years with this structure and these projected cap rates and interest rates in the future. And we want sign off from all of our third party as well, we because that gives us confidence that we're doing a good deal for us personally and also the investors that we're working with. We had a deal that we were doing that um, I really wanted and our um, broker on the debt, we were having all these conversations, everything else, and I called him and it was a couple days before the contract was going hard. And I said, hey, on this project, right, what would you, uh, you know, what would you do? What's your thing? I don't want to talk about it from like transaction standpoint, and everything. I want your opinion, and everything. And he said, AJ, I wouldn't do the deal. And I said, great, that's what I need. No, hung up the phone, called everyone, said, deal's done. Well, We're off. And how, how long did it take to build that team? So our internal and external team, right, today, long time, but our when we started out, it was CPA, it was our attorney, it was the broker, and it would be a broker on debt, and that was just calls, literally. We just called up a CPA, right, we could do things. So the third parties, you can do quickly. That doesn't take a lot to do quickly. Now, over, it's taken years to build out the team that obviously we have today. But if you're all alone, you only think you're all alone. Mm -hmm. You can call your broker that's giving you the deal. You can call the bank that you're working on. You can call a CPA and an attorney and say, here's the facts, like that packet you were talking about. Here's the information. I want to know, is this a green light from you? Mm -hmm. And I want to know if they say no, why? Yeah. I mean, and not only today, but that, that plan of execution later on. Like, are you going yes. to refinance into CNBS? Like, what does that long-term plan look like? Well, 100%. exactly. And, and I mean, for me, the goal of all of this and everything that I'm building today is literally for financial freedom to be able to live a lifestyle that me and my wife have envisioned and our goals are for our future family. Like that's the goal of all of it. And I don't want to stay up at night. I don't want to go bankrupt. I don't want to get yep. in trouble with the law. I don't want like I don't want any of that. So that's like the reason we are building this the way that we are. So like that's the thing that's always at the top of my mind. So if that box is not checked that for the financial freedom to be able to sleep at night, yes. we're not doing it. Yeah, something that, as we're having this conversation on, you know, we're talking about acquisitions, you know, and finding deals, um, but we also just did a podcast talking about, you know, evaluating that revenue management strategy that you have over time. And it makes me think too, it's like, we're not only stress testing in the beginning, right? Yes. You need to continuously and consistently be stress testing your assets, your revenue management, your strategy as you're working through the lifespan of that, of holding that. Asset. There's there's literally no asset, any type of financing structure that you can literally just buy it and forget about it. No. You just can't. You can't. Even, That's even, not if, how it even works. if you hire a property manager, it's still you need to manage the property it. manager. Yes. Like it's like there's no way of stepping out of the game if you want to be an Unless investor. you're a limited partner where you're giving another operator the money and they're getting paid to do it. That doesn't exist. If you're doing it yourself, right, there is no such thing as truly passive real estate income when you're doing it yourself. That doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And it's a dangerous thing that people think that it, it is. I'll go get a bank to borrow money from. I'll buy a property and then I'm never going to think about this again. Yeah. You're going to go bankrupt and it'll be your fault, exactly. right? And so... Exactly. <laughs> well, right. And, and even if you want to be truly in passive and invest as a limited partner into a deal with you guys or me or the million other sponsors that are out there, you also need to do your due diligence yeah. on the on property the sponsor, specifically. On the property, you need to do it on track records, you need to do it on the environment. Like 
you, you're exactly right. It's your front end work, right, is a lot. And then ongoing, you need to see the reports that are coming out. You want to actually analyze it. There is nothing that is like 100% passive. It's no. just how much you limit it. No, and, and, and just, you know, because of where we're at in the economy and the idea or the the syndication business model mm-hmm. has been blowing up over the last few years. Oh, yeah. It, it's, it's insane. And everyone's becoming a syndicator yes, that's, every- you know, kind of playing at, at this level. Yep. And, you know, as an LP, you need to do homework. Don't just follow them on Instagram and yes. think they're cool and sexy. Yes. Like if, if it looks too good to be true, dig and ask yep. questions. Like a lot of the due diligence stuff that we talked about of of stress testing it for years down the road, what are the interest rates going to be? What is the cap rate going to be when we have to go refinance? How are you, you know, calculating the returns that's on this deck, be it your cash on cash, your IRR or any of the other metrics that people are putting out there right now? You know, are people baking in appreciation to their return? Like, don't look at that. Like nobody can project or predict what's going to happen in the future. And LPs, this has been, honestly, this has been a big thing that I think we were surprised by. The amount of education that we need to work with LPs, even comparing the deals, stuff like that, when it's not our deals and I'm working with somebody and they're like, you know, kind of, what do you think? And you're like, you have zero returns unless this asset sells at a five cap. None. It literally doesn't exist. And if they can't, will this asset even survive? And how it's presented doesn't show that. It shows, oh, you're going to get an average internal rate of return for 20% over the next three, four years. Once we sell this thing, we have, we're have we not paying debt. We're going to sell it at a five cap, which is lower than we bought it for. And we're expecting that the market's just going to lift rates at 10%. And all of a sudden, you're looking at this going, what are the odds of this actually occurring? Right? But... LPs, they need to be asking those questions. 100%. That's important. You need to say, where do the returns come from? I always ask them. You're asking me about a deal. Where do the returns come from? And they're like, the asset. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Where do the returns come from? Is it cash flow today? Is it cash flow that needs to be created? Are you baking in tax benefits? Are you baking in tax benefits to the returns? Man, that's shocking when people look at it and they go, oh, 50% of my returns was a tax benefit that they don't even know as me as an individual if I can realize. Well, and the hard part is I'm not an accountant and no. I don't know your situation. No, and no, if you I am not an accountant for reps. I won't So like when I give you a K-1, in. the rest is up to you. Yeah. So like you need to ask a lot of questions. A lot of questions, exactly. Yeah, we don't even bake that kind of stuff in. We don't even, it's like... We hope we get good one. Good Try ones. not to I, even talk about it. Yeah, because like, I don't even know. That's you. I don't know <laughs> exactly. what the IRS is going to yeah, qualify. On right? And I don't know once the IRS says you can accelerate X amount of depreciation first year, I don't even know how much you're going to get of that because I don't understand your personal tax situation. And that's really hard because LPs want to know that. Big but time. as a syndicator and everything, it's like you've got to avoid telling them, oh, yeah, we're going to get 80% write-offs from this and you're going to take it all or something like well, that. Well, and, and, like, and, and so, know you know, but the thing that I would say is that I have personally evolved and learned learning about other strategies and ways to look and analyze a deal if I'm buying it or, you know, if an investor is coming to work with me. Like I had zero idea what an IRR was until about two years ago. Yeah. And like that is absolutely embarrassing because I had a pretty good sized portfolio two years yeah. ago. I didn't know about reps until it was too late and I switched accountants. 
Like I didn't know a lot about this stuff. And once, like for me, I can qualify for reps and bonus depreciation, which Mm -hmm. has changed things from a tax perspective for me. And one of the things that has allowed me to snowball because I get to reinvest what I thought I was going to be paying in taxes every year. Yeah. So everyone on an individual basis has a different situation, situation. but the more that you can learn, the better you will be. There are arrows in your quiver that you can pull out. Yes. And that's the key. Yes. You have them ready for you. And you know, oh, I have these five arrows that I can use on given situations and different, you know, and different strategies for you to increase your return and for you to use to make things work and compound out yours. Well, and the big thing that I would say, too, is that someone listening to the podcast is going to start go from start to finish. And we went, you know, pretty simple to pretty, you know, granular and complex, you know, here at the end. Yes. But you don't need to know all of this today to get started. No, 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 no. Get your criteria. If it's, I want to buy a house and get a 7% cash on cash return, great. Call me. I'll give you a spreadsheet to figure that out, and it won't be more complicated. Yeah. Go on Google. Figure it out. Yes. And then start to learn this over the years to build confidence for yourself, and things will evolve, and you can get to the scale that you know maybe you and I are playing at right now, or you'll blow us out of the water. But yeah. you just need to get started. It's so funny because you mentioned that. And like for me, we had all these deals and big ones and I didn't understand cap rates because at the time that just didn't make sense, right? It didn't make sense on the asset. It didn't make sense how we were buying it. Well, it didn't and, make sense and, with and the And you're market. not paying cash for a deal. So like a cap rate's great. That's how we value it. Yes. But I'm not paying cash and that's not my return. Exactly. So I don't care. And I wasn't <laughs> comparing cap rates to other assets or the markets because we didn't even have that at the time. And all I cared about was one thing and that was what if I invest this much money, how much money am I going to get back predicated on cash flow? I kid you not, I didn't know how to project appreciation because it just didn't matter to me at the time. And two, I didn't want to be doing that. I still don't want to be doing that, right? Um, I feel like you can get into some of these avenues where you're like, you, you can create justifications for doing deals by numbers that you're doing real estate numbers or valuations and you're getting too far away from the fundamentals of what really matters. And that's when you get complex structures and things like that. So when you're starting out, I actually think that limited knowledge can really, really, really benefit you. You can say, I don't know if this makes sense. Well, you could do all of these crazy things and you go, I don't understand how to do that. So I probably shouldn't be doing this deal as opposed to saying, oh, I'll do these things that I don't understand and hopefully it'll work out. And and, and even like the the complex multifamily deal that I kind of explained a little bit earlier, like I have multiple different types of spreadsheets and models that we look at. I have a, a, a model that I can plug in basic information in less than five minutes. And does this have any traction whatsoever? Yes. Now we're going to start putting things into more complex models to look at all the various things that we talked about. 100%. But at the end of the day, keep things simple. 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 Listen to podcasts like this one you know, get on social media and learn from people who are truly experts and have been doing this for a long time. No, I, I, the simplicity aspect we still use today Our, like you said, our model is crazy. It is very, very complex. It has been built off our own stuff, everything for over 15 years. It's, it's very, very big. That is not where we decide if we're going to do a deal or anything else like that. That is not literally we're looking at a few line items and we can immediately say, this is one that we want to do or not. From there, well now, okay, let's see, now that we know this is a deal we should be doing, 
like you said, now let's see. Now start to plug it in. What if we did this? And what if we have that, right? That's only after we get the green light, though. We don't use that to justify a green light. That's really, really important. Well, and and I touched on, uh, you know, my partner that, you know, his, his background in finance, his model that he uses is institutional grade modeling. Yes. And the first time that him and I did a deal, we sent his model to the bank and the bank was confused and we had to explain yep. what we what were looking going. at. Yeah. And so to get to like, and I absolutely love him and I love this model now, yeah. like it makes me feel very good that we're looking yes. at all this. But, but keeping things simple is reassuring. Oh, and it absolutely. makes it easier and it gets you started. Dude, we so we have a model. Everybody's like, oh, so can we use your model, everything else like that? I'm like, no, we have this free model you can go get. And all it is is just lines one, two, three, something like that. And they're like, oh, but that's not what you use. And I'm like, no, 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 no. It is. This is what we're using to know if we should do it or not. We don't need anything else except A, B, here's all this and that. Here's where you put debt, and here's what the returns mean. It's a one-page model, right, outside that. Then we move on to complex things that has tons of advantages. Once again, we're happy with you too. But keeping it simple is where we start. That's where we know if we should do a deal or not. We don't run it through and find something that other people can't find. That's not true. Like I think a lot of people think that once you have all this experience and everything, you have access to deals or even complex information that others don't even know about, right? Now, to one to one side, we are way better at identifying opportunity, everything else that other people can't. But still on a basic level, we wouldn't buy the deal. It can't be predicated on that kind of stuff. So I think it's important to realize when you're growing, when you're small, when you're starting out, that you're not like that that is not nearly as much as a disadvantage, I think, as is as people think it is. No, not not at all. And the the big thing too is the greatest thing about real estate and the worst thing about real estate is you can fail or succeed in a million different ways. Hundred percent. So you need to figure out where you're going and what you want to do and just evolve and gain confidence over time. Everything Absolutely. that we've been talking about for me has taken seven years. You've been doing this, you said, for 15? Over 15. Over 15 years. years. And so it does take time, but you just need to stay focused. Absolutely. Well, that's the perfect spot to end this. Um, Dude, thank you so much for coming out. Um, Where can people go to learn more about you? We'll have it in the show notes. Instagram, you mentioned that. Yep. So uh, you can follow me on my Instagram. I've uh, I've made a big push to get back on there to, you know, inspire uh, the greatest thing through getting on podcasts recently and being on Instagram is I did it to inspire others to get involved into this. And the absolute coolest story that I have in the six months that I've been doing this is I have a cousin in Illinois that is literally starting and writing an LOI to do a storage development because he listened to my first podcast. He's my cousin. We get together all the time. But listen to podcasts, get inspired, and please get started. If you want to reach out to me, please follow me on Instagram. Uh, Direct message me, reach out. I literally want to try to talk to almost every single person that I can. If it's a hopping on a call one-on-one, it might take, you know, a couple days to get back to you. But I absolutely want to try to help anybody who wants help. That's amazing. Dude, thanks for coming on. Thanks for sharing your knowledge. We really appreciate you coming out here. And uh, let's end this and go grab some lunch. Sound good? (laughs) Let's do it. Thanks a lot, guys. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. 
All right, everybody, that was a great conversation with Ben. Be sure to check out his stuff down in the show notes as well. And if you guys can leave us a review here on the podcast, we would really appreciate that. We do see those and we take your feedback to heart. And now let's go ahead and read some of your comments and reviews. TSJ23 says, learning lots from AJ and listen to him since first hearing him on the Bigger Pockets podcast. Fun podcast and learning lots. Harry L. Jr. says, insightful commentary. Recently started listening to SSI and have found AJ to be exceptionally adept at communicating the ins and outs of owning and operating self-storage. I especially found the most recent podcast on why now is the time to buy self-storage despite a pending recession. Thank you, AJ, for referencing data from prior recessions to support your thesis on moving forward. I've listened to other content providers on the subject, but AJ delivers a no-nonsense, no-sales-pitching voice. That was a glowing review, Harry. Thanks so much for tuning in and leaving us that review. And as someone who is relatively new to AJ's brand, I just met him back in 2021, and the first, my first impression was like, wow, like I actually want to hear more from him. I want to listen to what he has to say because he's not trying to sell you on something. I'm sure you guys are familiar with the annoying car salesmen that always are just watching you. As soon as you step onto their property, they're watching you. They're trying to get every single penny out of you. And the first thing I noticed when talking to AJ is that he does not do that. And I'm sure you guys here on the podcast have experienced that as well. If you're not familiar with this podcast or if this is your first time, welcome. We loved having you here. Definitely subscribe if you haven't already. But that's going to be it for today. Thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. And we'll see you in the next one.